Thank you, Brother Josh. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Very important uh, scripture. But as Josh alluded to in speaking about the greatness of God, uh, we're only going to be able to touch the tip of the iceberg as we look at this uh, scripture dealing with spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of tongues. There are 40 verses in this chapter. It will not be possible for me in a time that we have together this evening to uh, give an exposition of every verse in chapter 14. So I just want to give you uh, kind of the highlights if I can. I want to start with a history lesson and you're thinking, oh my, just what I love, another history lesson. We start with a history lesson because you're Baptist. Most of you don't have a charismatic background or have a great deal of knowledge about charismatics. Because the gift of tongues is so tied to the charismatic movement, I I think it's important that we get a little bit of perspective on the charismatic movement. The modern charismatic movement can trace its origins to 1901 when a woman by the name of Agnes Osman reportedly spoke in tongues during a prayer meeting in Topeka, Kansas. A group of students with a Wesleyan holiness background had been studying the book of Acts. They were particularly interested in what it revealed about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they believed took place subsequent to salvation, that this took place after one was saved. They wondered if the tongue speaking was a sign of the Spirit in the apostolic age. Was it still true at the outset of the 20th century? Was it still a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence? In those early days, those who spoke in tongues, much to my ignorance, honestly, Those who spoke in tongues in those early days were convinced that they were speaking in authentic foreign languages, just as the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. So much so that they thought their Pentecostal missionaries would be able to go to foreign fields without having to go to language school. Unfortunately, their missionary strategy backfired rather badly when their missionaries arrived on the field and found out that their hearers could not understand them. The gift of tongues once again became prominent, and if you've heard of it at all, this is probably what you've heard of, in a Pentecostal revival that occurred or came to be called the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California, in about a three-year period from 1906 to 1909. In the 1960s, the Jesus Movement became very uh, much involved in the gift of tongues, and they brought this movement into the contemporary church. 
In the 1940s and 50s and 60s, Oral Roberts came to the scene. Oral Roberts gave them uh, the background for their theology in the sense that he is the one that came up with the idea of seed faith. From that, we get the modern prosperity gospel. Probably 70 to 80% of the charismatics today would adhere to the prosperity gospel. Ultimately, the gift of tongues was viewed as the sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit and a second blessing subsequent to salvation. It was soon seen as the only true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the only true sign that you were really saved. Now tonight I want to share four things with you about tongues in the church. First of all, the place of tongues in the church. Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you might prophesy, for he who speaks in tongues does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. Unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, Paul draws a a contrast between the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Now, when he uses the word gift of prophecy here, I don't believe that he's talking exclusively about foretelling. But the word can also mean forthtelling, which would also mean the proclamation of the word of God. But the primary difference, he says, lies in whom the worshiper is speaking to. With the gift of tongues, the speaker is addressing God, not men. Which causes people to draw a difference between the tongues that are spoken in Acts chapter 2, which was authentic human languages, and that which is referred to in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which seems to be a static utterance and does not have anything to do with human languages necessarily. With the gift of tongues, the speaker is addressing himself to God, and if this is the case, then it would seem that tongues would hardly ever be appropriate for a public worship service. The second thing that he talks about is the prophet, the prophet of tongues in the church. In verse 6, he says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching, even things without life, whether a flute or a harp? When they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will we know what is piped or played? 
For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking in the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of a language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Paul, I believe, is not diminishing the gift of tongues. Yet Paul qualifies his words by saying in verse number 5, I would rather you prophesy so that the church might be edified. In other words, Paul sees no profit for the use of the gift of tongues in public unless other people can derive some benefit from it. Paul illustrates why this proclamation of truth was more, de- more desirable than the gift of tongues by using three illustrations. The first illustration that he uses is that of a musical instrument in verse number 7. Sometimes one of my grandchildren, when visiting our home, will sit down at the piano that we have, and they will start, I hesitate to use the word playing, it's more like banging on the keys. Now, obviously, they are having a good time, but I assure you that those in the house hear only a harsh noise. To those listening... To those who are speaking in tongues, Paul says it's noise, not music. It's not enriching, it's annoying. The second thing he says, the second illustration is that of a trumpeter or a bugler would be a better description for us in verse number 8. If the people hearing the sound from the bugle cannot distinguish between the sound of retreat and the sound of charge, then the sound of the bugle might as well not be sounded because it's not any help at all because they don't know how to respond to it. The third illustration is from language in verses 9 through 11. Paul points out that there are many languages in the world. But if I don't understand that language, it's merely frustrating Have you ever been in a situation where you were surrounded by people speaking another language? And you were the only one that doesn't understand. It's kind of weird. You feel funny. It seems like everybody's talking about you. And what they're saying may not be complimentary. That may just be me being paranoid but I think it's a common feeling. Once in southern Mexico, Brother Isaias took me to preach at a little country church out in an Indian village. Since the church had no air conditioning or even a fan, everybody was outside the building before the service began. And I was looking down the street, and I'm watching this man falling on and off the curb as he's walking. 
I'm the only gringo in miles. And this man walks straight through all of these people and right up to me. And he says something in Spanish. And I look at him and I look at everybody and they're dying laughing. I have no idea what he said. So I asked Brother Isaias, and he couldn't quite get himself together enough to tell me. He says, well, Brother John, he says, I perceive, sir, that you have a very pretty face. <laughs> and I knew then that he was drunk. <clears throat> Third, the purpose of tongues in the church. He says it's a sign to unbelievers. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And the law is written with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord, and therefore tongues for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will not say, will they not say, you are out of your mind. And if you've ever been in a charismatic church and you're not used to charismatic services and you see the ecstatic states they get themselves into, then you are likely to respond, something wrong is going on here. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. So he says, yet if someone stands in the pulpit and proclaims the word of God, then that unbeliever will be convicted just as those who also may have heard the word before. And thus the secret of his heart is revealed And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among us. The interesting thing is the exact correlation, I believe, between what was being experienced by the Corinthians and what we see in our own day by modern charismatics. And that is, those who exercise the gift of tongues think of themselves as more spiritual than those who do not. Paul says this is far from the case in their insistence that the gift of tongues proved their spirituality. They in fact proved or revealed their immaturity. He says that they are being selfish in their worship. They were meeting together only to meet their own needs. And they were missing the real purpose, which is to honor God and to encourage one another. This next statement I'm going to make applies to us Baptists as much as it does as charismatics. We are not to evaluate our worship based on how much we enjoyed the experience. That's not the point. And fourth, the procedure for tongues in the church. I'm going to step out on a limb here, and I'm going to say probably 80 to 90% of what you witness in charismatic churches around the country 
is not biblical because they don't follow the dictates of Scripture. Paul asserts that God is interested in how we worship him. And to clarify, Paul gives, or he defines for us, the nature of worship. He says, first of all, that worship is participatory in verse 26, that we're to be involved. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. The problem in the worship service at Corinth was not the lack of participation. It seemed that everyone came ready to speak. And they not only came ready to speak, they were determined to do so, even if they had to interrupt someone else who was currently speaking. Most, if not all, the Corinthians were participating, but the results were far from edifying. He says in verses 27 and following that that worship is to be orderly. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by... Let the first keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one that you all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The the Apostle Paul gives five simple rules regulating the exercise of the gift of tongues in a corporate worship service. First of all, he says they are to be limited in number. Verse number 27, he says two or at the most three. This speaking should be done in an orderly fashion, each in turn, speaking one at a time. Secondly, he says there should always be an interpreter present. This is the point at which I think many Modern charismatics go astray. He says, if no interpreter is present, then the person should not speak in tongues. Here's an important part, so listen closely. The the wording of this verse precludes the one who is speaking in tongues from interpreting for themselves. You understand what I mean? Somebody gets up and they say, I'm going to speak in tongues, and they speak in tongues, and then they say, now I'm going to give you an interpretation. Not valid. First of all, in a human standpoint, that doesn't make sense. I get up here this evening and I say, first of all, I want to give you a word in Swahili. And so for 15 minutes, I preach to you in Swahili. And then I say, okay, now I want to tell you what I said in Swahili in English. And you say, in your mind, why didn't you just tell us the, American, the English version and skip the Swahili? Because we didn't understand that anyway. That's Paul's point here. The principle is that if no one, that if no one can benefit, then it should not be done. 
It also says the speaker should be controlled. It's not ecstatic in the sense that you have no control over what's happening to you. There is no place scripturally for a person to be caught up in an ecstatic state and lose control. And that's exactly what you see in some of the religions such as voodoo in which the participant works themselves into a frenzy over which they no longer have any control. It would also seem to speak to some of the crazy things that are reported in our day. Now, you're going to think I'm making up some of this. Most of you probably have heard of holy laughter that went the rounds in some of the charismatic churches, and this was simply uncontrolled, uncontrollable laughter. They laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed, and they fell on the floor, and they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed some more. But if that's not goofy enough for you, then go on YouTube and look up. I started to show you this, and I decided, nah, not even going to show it to you. The Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'm not making this up, folks. The Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You know the Hokey Pokey. Put your right hand up, put your left hand up, put your right leg out, put your left leg out. And they're doing all of this to invite the Holy Spirit to come in and inhabit them. (laughs) By thinking that they are honoring the Holy Spirit, I believe they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And if that's not bad enough for you, there is also called token the ghost. Now you have to be from my generation pretty much to know what token is. Token is smoking marijuana. When you take a toke, okay? If you're token the Holy Spirit, then you're (gasps) breathing in the Holy Spirit. This is the whole sense of what they're talking about. Bringing the Holy Spirit into their life. Absolutely ridiculous, if not blasphemous. If these regulations cannot be kept, Paul says, then the gift of tongues should be used in private devotional time only. He also says in verses 34 through 40 that worship should all always be considerate. <clears throat> now I'm only going to read two verses of these because I can probably make you mad enough in two verses to not have to deal with the rest of them. <clears throat> Let your women keep silent <clears throat> in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something let them ask their own husbands at home For it is shameful for women to speak in church. That's a difficult passage. Because it certainly cuts across the grain of what is considered politically correct in our society. But I believe that one must interpret those verses in context if you want to know what he's talking about. What is the context? The context is speaking in tongues. 
In the Greek, it literally says, the women. Definite article, the women. Which forces us to ask the question, what women? Was Paul exhorting all women to be silent? Or were there particular women who were causing a problem? Well, I believe that he was talking to particular women in the church at Corinth who were causing a problem. Let me read you what one commentator makes about this statement. He says, in the Greek culture, women were discouraged from saying anything in public, and they were certainly not allowed to confront or question men publicly. Apparently, some of the women who had become Christians thought that their Christian freedom gave them the right to question the men in the public worship service. And this was causing division in the church. The speaking to which Paul referred was the inappropriate asking of questions that would disrupt the worship service or take it on a tangent. Therefore, the women, these women, should be silent during the church meetings, not because they were never to speak, but because they were not to speak out with questions that would be ineffective in edifying the entire church. If this is correct, and I believe it is. And understanding that then these women were asking questions, apparently in a disruptive and socially offensive way, which was distracting others, and they were being guilty of being inconsiderate of other people. The questions that they were asking could have easily been addressed at home, and Paul says that's where the discussion should be. If this is correct, then Paul was not speaking about the role of women in the church, but about the nature of true biblical worship. Let me just close with just two little general principles. We need to be careful not to use our personal experience in any area as the standard by which other people are judged. My experience, or what I think my experience is, is not the standard. God's word is the standard. And sincerity is never the test of truth. I know people who are sincere, and I believe that they are sincerely wrong. Sincerity can never be the test of truth. God's word is always the test of truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us, never giving up on us and continuing to teach us and stretch us and move us. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we go forth from here in a little while. There'd be good testimonies for you in this world in which we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.